turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And the fellows have stacks of Bibles that they'll distribute to anybody who gets their attention. If you want a copy of the Scriptures to follow along, we'd encourage you to do that and get their attention. They'll have a Bible that's marked at Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 is part of the series we've been doing for many months, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. When I say the word Proverbs, most in this group will think of a book by that name in the Bible. That book has that name because it's filled with short sayings that are generally true. You say, you mean there's stuff in the Bible that's not always true? The Bible affirms things as true, but they're not always true in all situations. The answer to that is yes. Proverbs, by their very nature, are usually true, but there are exceptions. And so, for example, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is generally, usually true. But there are exceptions. There are actually exceptions to that in Scripture itself. It's the nature of a proverb to give a general, usual truth. Usually true, but not always. That's what a proverb is, a general truth. It's a saying that holds true in the vast majority of cases, but recognizes that sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, and therefore you're unfamiliar with the book of Proverbs, you still hear and perhaps say Proverbs from time to time. Things like a barking dog never bites. That's usually true. You don't want to be the exception, but there are exceptions to that. A fool and his money are soon parted. That's generally true, but not always. Or sayings like good things come to those who wait. Generally true. But there are exceptions. Cheaters never prosper. We've probably all known cheaters who look to be having a pretty good time of it, as a matter of fact. Here's another secular proverb that's supported by the Bible and is generally usually true. Everything rises and falls on leadership. That is generally true. There are exceptions. But that is generally, usually the case. It's saying everything rises and falls on leadership, that the success of an endeavor is usually dependent on the quality of the leadership that it has. And while there are exceptions, it's most often true in government and in business and in education and in athletics. And it's also true in our homes and in our marriages that whoever is supposed to be leading has the God-given responsibility to see to it that the purpose for this relationship is accomplished successfully from God's standpoint. Everything rises and falls in our homes due to good or bad leadership. While it's possible to be the model husband and father, and have an ungrateful and uncooperative wife and children, that's not usually the way it goes. And further, when we analyze our homes and their condition, it is certainly not the first place we should go 
to point fingers and blame shift toward those that we were called to lead. We saw last week that God has appointed males to lead in the home. And generally speaking, the success of our homes is dependent on how well we exercise men that God-given responsibility. Men are the relationships in your home. What they should be from God's perspective. And if the answer to that is no, then the first place for each of us to look is the mirror. No blame shifting. No excuses. The mirror. God has made us the head of our homes. And he holds us responsible for how well we lead. Thankfully, he's given us instruction on the profile of godly male leadership. And he also gives us the power of his spirit to those men who have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And so we have his indispensable aid for us in what would otherwise be an impossible proposition. So what we're going to look at today for men leading their homes, beginning in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, is extremely important indeed. It's something we cannot accomplish in our own strength. And so let's pause for a moment to ask God to help us. Father, we come before this passage in your word humbled by our frailty and our sin. I know, Lord God, that I do not have the ability within me to fulfill what you have called me to. It's true of my brothers here and my sisters to their respective roles as well. And so we find ourselves, as always, in need of your grace. We ask you, Lord, to give us a measure of your grace in this time together. As we look at your word to see what you have said, understanding throughout that we can only accomplish this by the power of your spirit. But may we accomplish it to bring glory to the one who deserves it. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now this passage, beginning in verse 22, as we saw last week, is part of a section that goes from verse 22 of Ephesians 5 to Ephesians 6 and verse 9. And it deals with three particular relationships in which Christ-likeness is to be seen in the way we carry out those relationships. And so husband-wife relationship, beginning in verse 22 and now through verse 33. And then next week we'll see, beginning in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4, the parent-child relationship. And then in verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians 6, we will see the master-servant or employer-employee relationship. Now, the points we're going to make today then regarding husbands and wives, and particularly the role of husbands, can apply to any relationship, not just the marital relationship. And so as we go through the four points that I have in the outline inserted in your program, I encourage those of you who are not married or not yet married, that you think about how these principles will apply to all the relationships that you have, and I'll try to point that out as well as we go. Now, this passage is an extension of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Ephesians 5.18 says to be filled with the Spirit. 
And then we saw when we were in that section that there are four things that flow from being filled or, as we saw, being controlled by the Spirit of God. Those four things are found in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 5. And they are that we will have fellowship with one another. That we will engage in worship to God. That we will be grateful people. That we will be thankful to God. And then fourthly, in verse 21... If we're controlled by the Spirit, we will submit to one another in our various relationships. Now, beginning in verse 22 through verse 9 of chapter 6, we have these three relationships in which the Spirit control is to be evidenced by the submission that we give to one another in the home. Husbands and wives, children and parents, and then servants and masters as well. Last week, we saw the role of the wife to follow the loving leadership of her husband. But we need to ensure that the husband is leading as he ought. And that means that he's going to understand the four things that I have in your outline. The first is this, that a husband's love is to be submissive. A husband's love is submissive. Verse 21 tells us, that the fourth of these four expressions of spirit control is mutual submission in our various spheres of relationship. And so not only now are women to submit, wives to submit to their husbands, but husbands have a sense in which they are to submit to their wives as well. A husband's love is submissive. Now, in order for you to submit to your wife, me to my wife, I need to know in what sense I submit to my wife, given that, as we saw last week, the man was made to be the head of the home in God's original creation. That's assumed in the passage that we're considering as well. Wives are to submit then to the headship, the authority of their husbands in the home. And of course, you can't have two equal authorities submitting to each other. So in what sense do husbands submit to their wives? Well, I would suggest to you that the way husbands submit to their wives is not that we submit to their headship. It's not that we submit to their authority. It is that we submit to their needs. You all remember that last week we defined the word submit as to place yourself under. That's what the word means, to place under. And so in the case of our wives, our wives place themselves under willingly and voluntarily for the sake of Christ, the headship that he has given to the husband in the home. The husband who is lovingly leading his wife voluntarily submits himself because he loves her to the needs that she has. He places himself under her needs. Now we see that alluded to in another passage that deals with the husband-wife relationship, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, I've highlighted that phrase, in the same way. In the same way as what? Husbands, here's how you're to live, in the same way as something. Well, the something is right before verse 7. That's 1 Peter 3, 7. Just before 1 Peter 3, 7 is 1 Peter 1 through 6. And verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter are about wives submitting themselves to their husbands. And then it gives instructions to the wives in that regard. And verse 1 of 1 Peter 3 says, wives in the same way, same phrase. Well, in the same way as what for the wives? 
That goes back to chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, we have Jesus Christ himself as the supreme example of placing his desires and his needs under those of those that he came to serve. He's given us the example then in chapter 2 of how servants are to submit to their masters. And then it goes further back to verse 13 of 1 Peter 2 where we're told that all of us have a responsibility to submit ourselves, place ourselves under the authority of the government. And so now you come to verse 7, 1 Peter 3, in the same way, husbands are to submit, but submit in what manner? And verse 7 of 1 Peter 3 says this, you submit implied in the context, husbands in the same way, now submit, here's, here's the manner in which you do that. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, you read that, those two words, be considerate. And we use the word so-and-so is considerate, or that was very considerate of you, to mean be polite. And so you might think that means, husbands, here's how you submit, be polite to her. That's one aspect. But the word considerate is much wider than being polite. And we know that because we actually use it in another way. Sometimes we might say, consider this. When we say that, we mean, think about this. Focus on this. And so in 1 Peter 3, what's translated as be considerate is actually, in fact, in the King James it says, husbands, live with your wives, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. And so be considerate means think about, learn gain knowledge regarding your wives. And so a husband places himself under the needs of his wife by considering her, thinking about her, learning about her, creating an inventory of what her needs are, and then placing himself under those needs. That means, men, we have got to get to know the needs of our wives. That means we need to know what her unique needs are as a woman in general. She has needs as what the Bible calls the weaker vessel. She has needs simply because she is a female. And she is, she is vulnerable to the authority that God has placed her under in the home, that would be your authority. She is vulnerable physically in the world at at large. As a woman in general, she is vulnerable generally, emotionally, because of the ups and downs of the physiological makeup of the female in order to have children. So she has those needs just as a woman in general. And we men need to know those, learn those, study those, consider those, and then act according to her needs. But she also has needs as, a, as your wife in particular. She's a woman in general. You can make general categories of what her needs are, but then she is a unique individual in her own right, in her own particular God-given makeup. And she has needs that you need to supply in that regard as well. You've got to know what her strengths are and encourage her 
in those God-given gifts. You have to know what her liabilities are. We've all got them, strengths and liabilities. And so I've got to know what those are and bolster her and help her in those areas where she's weakest. Getting to know her needs so that I can place myself under those needs is the way in which men are to submit. And you see how this applies in any situation, any relationship. Getting to know the person with whom I have a relationship and being willing to place myself under their needs or to defer to the needs that that individual has. A husband's love is submissive. Now we're going to see three other things that a husband's love is. But before we move off of husbands having to submit, men having to submit, yeah, really? This was a pretty good gig for the men last week because the wives submit. And now I've got to submit, now I've got to defer, now I've got to place myself under. We place ourselves under the needs of our wives as an expression of our love for them. Hear this, men. Too many of us sinfully great against God's requirement for us to place ourselves under the needs of our wives, and hear this, and sometimes under the authority of anyone else. I have seen several men in my over 20 years of ministry now who love to be in charge but can't stand to submit. And men, if that describes you, understand that is a spiritual problem. All of us, all of us are called by God to be under authority in some realms. And if you cannot place yourself under authority in the realm of government, in the realm of work, in the realm of church, that's a spiritual problem God teaches. I've known guys who have said, I can't, I can't, I have to have my own business. I can't work for anybody else. Now, I'm thankful for the many entrepreneurs that God has given us in our church. People who own their own businesses and doing godly work in their businesses in a Christ-like way. So I thank God for that. But I don't thank God for the person who says, I do this because I can't place myself under anybody else. That should never be. Our attitude should always be one of placing ourselves under, in certain realms, the authority of those placed above us, and in the case of the home, under the needs of the wives God has given us. A husband's love is submissive. Secondly, a husband's love is sacrificial. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25 clearly speaks then of the need for sacrifice, giving, and giving supremely for the good of those that we are called to serve, just as Christ has done for us. Using the relationship of Christ and the church as an image of the husband with the wife is something that we see throughout Scripture. 
Jesus declared himself to be the bridegroom in Mark chapter 2. The Bible tells us that at the end of human history, there's going to be something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride of Christ, the church, will be brought to the bride and there will be this, this celebration and a reception like you've, you've never seen. And so husbands are to love their wives sacrificially as Christ has loved the church. Now, why is this? Why is it that husbands are told in this passage about husband-wife relationships, husbands are told specifically, love your wives, and wives are told specifically, submit to your husbands, when in fact, both the wife and the husband are to love each other, and both, as we've seen, the wife and the husband are to submit to one another. Why is the wife singled out for submission? And why is the husband singled out for love when, in fact, both are to love? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, does this mean husbands love your wives, wives submit? Wives submit, but you don't have to love them? Or husbands love, but there's no sense in which you submit? No, both of them do each, but they are singled out. Wives submit, husbands love. Why is that? It goes back to the beginning and the fall into sin. We reviewed that a bit last week. But I will just remind you of what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and the changes that took place, not only in their relationship with God vertically, but now their relationship with each other horizontally. And you'll remember that God communicated to the man and the woman consequences now for the sin that they had committed. In verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3, God speaks to the woman and he says to the woman, because you have done this now, one of the reminders of the consequences of sin is going to be that in pain you will bring forth children. But he also says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over. You all remember that from last week? And we saw that that phrase, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, is the exact same Hebrew phrase used in the next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7, where God approaches Cain after Cain has committed this first murder. And God says to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And then God says, it, sin desires to have you, but you must master it. Same Hebrew phrase as in chapter 3 and verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. What's being said to Eve by God in Genesis 3 is your desire, like sin's desire, (laughs) will be to master. And he will respond by sinfully seeking to rule over you. And so why is the woman specifically now singled out? Submit. Well, one, it's the arrangement, authority and fellowship as we've seen, but also because this is going to be the particular struggle for the woman. She will seek to master him. She will seek to change him. And his response will be to seek to sinfully dominate her. And so in Ephesians 5, we have the husband singled out. Husbands, love your wives. That includes submitting to their needs. It means sacrificially giving ourselves for their good. Now notice this in verse 25, that loving and giving are separate. Verse 25, love your wives just as Christ, now notice, loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. And the and there in English is present in Greek. So it is, you, Christ loved the church and gave. Now here's why I'm pointing that out. Many times we think that the giving is the loving. But here, the giving is the expression of the love. He loved the church, and because he loved the church, as an expression of that love, he gave himself up for her. What's being said here is that it's possible for you to give and not love. Did you know that? It's possible for you to give sacrificially. And still not love. The Bible actually says that in a chapter that most of us know as the love chapter. It's all about love. 13 verses worth. In 1 Corinthians 13. And notice what it says. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. I can do all of that stuff. I can give up my life and still not love. But Jesus loved and because he loved. As an expression of that love, he gave supremely. You see, love without affection is not full biblical love. The object of our love should be desired. In the words of one author, to abandon desire is to say, I don't really want you, but I'll live with you because, well, I'm supposed to. You seek the one you desire. And she responds to your seeking because it touches her heart's desire to be longed for. Yes, commitment plays a a vital role. And we'll be reminded of that in a bit. But only as the expression of desire. Duty reduces our relationships to a drill. It's as if you showed up with a bouquet of flowers for your anniversary. Your wife's delighted, but then you say, think nothing of it, it's my obligation. And John Piper goes on to say, dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. Roses that are just doing my duty are a contradiction in terms. And so love without affection is not full biblical love. And Christ loved the church. And because he loved the church, he gave himself for the church. That's why the Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I've drawn you with loving kindness. The Bible teaches that those who come to God through Jesus Christ are those on whom He set his loving affection in eternity past. Before they ever came to be. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And before you came to be, I chose you, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. We saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has predestined us to a relationship with him, adoption into his family. And so we make, now hear this, we make a choice to love. And then because we love, we give as an expression of that love. Christ loved the church 
And because he loved the church, he gave himself for her. When it says Christ loved the church, some of you may think, you know, Christ loved the building? Clearly, this shows us that church is not a building, right? And we, above all people, should know that. We're trying to get a building. But we've been a church for 10 years, thanks be to God. Christ loved his people. And his people are those that are called out of the world unto himself. And that is what the word church actually means, ecclesia, the called out one. We've been called out of the world and to God because Christ loved us, called us out of the world and to himself. And so love means setting your affection, choosing to love one, and then showing that love by sacrificial giving. It's what Christ did for the church. It's doing what's in her best interest, even when it's not your best interest. In Paul's day, there were those who would talk about love, but not this kind of love. <laughs> in fact, the word that's translated love in verse 25, husbands love your wives, is the word that many of you are familiar with, the Greek word agape. And that's a kind of love that was not spoken of in contemporary society at the time this letter was written. They would use a different Greek word, phileo. We get the name of a town, Philadelphia, from it. Delphos means brother, philos means love, and so Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. If you've ever been there, it's not true, but nonetheless. I've been there a number of times. This is agape love. This, this is love that sets its affection and then because of making a choice to love, expresses that love even to ex extreme and ultimate sacrifice. Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Clearly telling us that his love was expressed by dying for us on the cruel cross. And men, we're called to love our wives that way. It's said explicitly in Scripture, in what I call the other John 3.16. <laughs> John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave, his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And men we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for our wives as the priority relationship that God has given us. You see, this is true in any relationship for those of you not yet married or not going to be married. That we give up what is precious for the sake of another. One author says, I suppose if there's any way to characterize this love, it would be to be selfless. Swallow your pride. Swallow your personal desires. Swallow your personal ambitions. Swallow your fantasies and dreams about how life might have been with someone else or under other circumstances. Put all that aside. It's all meaningless. It only boils down to temptation. And love your wives 
with a love that knows nothing of self and only of her and her needs and her concerns and her heart and sacrifice your life on her behalf. Now, guys, and I'm speaking to myself here as a husband, it might be easy for us to sit in this room and say, yes, that's right. I'd die for my wife. I'd take a bullet for my, for my dear wife. But let me ask you, you know, if you can't give up the remote, how will you be willing to give up your life? If you can't give up your toys, how will you be willing to give up your life? If you can't give up your habits, how will you be willing to give up your lives? Or to put it another way, if you can't live for her, what makes you think you'll be willing to die for her? So for us to say, yes, I'll take that bullet, and to live the sorts of selfish lives that so many of us live in our homes is a contradiction. Our attitude and our approach ought to be, my wife, she's to die for. As a gift from a good God. With this God-given responsibility, my wife is to die for. And so you act to meet her, not just her needs in general, but her particular needs. And in relationships in general, their particular needs. A husband's wife is submissive and it's sacrificial. And thirdly, in your outline, a husband's love is sanctifying. A husband's love is submissive and sacrificial and now sanctifying. Verse 26. Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Love wants to purify. And when it says in verse 27 that Christ's desire and Christ's purpose is to present to himself a radiant church, it's presenting to himself the church in all her glory. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 25, the, the same word that's translated radiant is used. And it's translated this way, splendidly clothed. Our goal, men, because we love our wives, is to see purity developed, holiness developed in her. To present her to Christ as splendidly clothed, in all her pure glory. That requires both an initial and an ongoing cleansing by the word. Verse 26 says, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And that initial cleansing with the word comes when she hears the gospel message and the Holy Spirit moves upon her. And she responds, knowing her need, and responds to the Savior, and the Holy Spirit enters a relationship with her. If your wife is not saved, your number one priority is to see her come to a relationship with Jesus Christ through the gospel message. If your wife is saved, 
There's an ongoing cleansing with the word that I'll talk about. But Jesus speaks of this initial cleansing that his first followers had when he said, you're already clean. How? Because of the word I have spoken to you. But then there is this this need for ongoing cleansing. And Jesus was with that same group of first followers on the night before he died when he said those words in John 15. But he was in an upper room in this famous scene that most of us are familiar with in John chapter 13. And Jesus gets up from the supper table and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. Just don't say that lightly. Christ is going to wash the feet of his disciples. God gets up and bows down to wash. Let me just say, man, If God Almighty would humble himself to bow down, to wash the feet of sinful men, can we not humble ourselves in our homes to say, I don't need that. I need you. I will put that aside. I will swallow my pride. Jesus starts to wash their feet. And Peter says, never, you will never wash my feet. You're my master. And they have a dialogue that goes like this. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, in that case, says Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. In that one phrase, a person who has had a bath. (laughs) You see, you've had the bath, as it were, of salvation. You've come to Christ. But we need constant and regular cleansing, do we not? In our ongoing battle with sin. So men, if your wife has never come to Christ, that's your number one priority. Through the word of the gospel message to see her come to the Savior. But if she is saved now, to see her continually cleansed by the Word. And God gave to the male, to Adam, the first instructions in the garden. He gave instructions to Adam before he created Eve. And Adam's job was to tell Eve what God had said. Got that, guys? God has given to us to tell our wives what God has said. Yes, our wives should, ought to, must study the Bible on their own. But God has called us to lead our homes spiritually and to dispense the word of God to our wives and to our children. And that's impossible if you don't know the word. And it's impossible for you to know the word if the only teaching you get is 45 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever it seems like on Sunday morning. It's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. And I have found that many men don't know the Word. Now, I want to encourage you fellows in regard to that, though. We pastors complain about the fact that men don't know the Word It's been my observation now over many years that we don't make it easy for men to learn the Word. Now, here's what I mean. 
there's much that's been written about the fact that church is really made for girls. That much of what goes on in church appeals mostly to females. And guys might show up, but they just show up because the family goes and the kids go. But in terms of what actually happens and what I hear and what I'm called to, it's mostly women's stuff. And so many of the ministries are designed for the strengths of primarily females in many of our churches. And many of you have experienced that. And as a result of that, but also your own sinful passivity, you have simply been a spectator. But if we're going to fulfill Ephesians 5, then we as a church need to offer you ways to learn the Word. And then you, as a responsible individual before God, need to avail yourself of those programs and possibilities. And so we offer a track for you to learn the Word of God. There isn't a guy here who has an excuse for not learning the Word of God. And I'm going to give an account before God as to whether or not we gave you opportunity to do that. And I will tell you, men, I can't make you drink, but I can offer the trough. And we have offered you the trough. And so you must take advantage of the courses that we offer for you to learn the Bible so that you can dispense the Word of God to your wives and children. We have a men's program that some of you have joined. Perhaps some of you simply cannot. I understand that. Some of you simply have not. And I'm telling you, men, you need that. That's why we offer it. We offer it on Wednesday night. We offer it on Friday morning at 6 a.m. Evening, early morning. We're trying to catch everybody. I encourage you, men, to avail yourself of the privileges that are offered to you through God's church. So if she is going to be, in an ongoing way, cleansed by the Word, it means that the Word of God is going to be central to our homes. It means that we husbands are going to know the Word of God, and we're going to be able to converse in scriptural terms with our wives and with our children. It also means that we're going to protect, if we're going to present her as holy and blameless, we're going to protect our wives and our children from harmful influences. Are there harmful influences vying for attention in your home? (laughs) Are you kidding? The media? The internet? Men, do you know what your children are looking at? And what they're doing? Do you know what your wives are being attracted to? Men, we need to ask ourselves this. If it is true, and it is in verses 26 and 27... That we are to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and that his aim for those he loves, those who comprise the church, is to present them holy and blameless. Then our goal for our wives is to present them holy and blameless. And the question then for us is, is my wife more holy because of her relationship with me? God has given you the responsibility to be an agent in her holiness. Is she more holy because of her relationship with me? Or to those of you in broader relationships, are your friends more holy because of your relationship with them? The Bible says, 
Paul, who wrote these words on the screen, says, I, Paul, promised you to one husband, that is to Christ. Here's why. So that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So we act, men, to meet not just her needs, not just her particular needs, but especially her spiritual needs. And likewise in other relationships. Fourthly and lastly, a husband's love is submissive and it's sacrificial, it's sanctifying. But a husband's love is also self-love. I'll explain. I don't love that term. But here's what verse 28 says. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. Now notice, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, verse 29, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And so what's being said here is sort of a golden rule of husband-wife relationships then. We're to treat our wives in the way that we ourselves would desire to be treated. And in fact, the way we treat ourselves with the kind of care and nourishment and attention that we treat ourselves. Jesus said in what we all know is the golden rule, do to others as you would have them to do to you. So husbands are to ask, what are all of her needs? As we look at the needs that that we have, then she has at least those needs. And then our love ought to be reflected in trying to meet those needs in a sort of self-love that reflects itself in serving serving her in our homes, treating her as we would want to be treated. Now I have a take-home truth at the bottom. Husbands, this is what God is telling us, that we reflect Christ when when we love our wives as he loves. Husbands reflect Christ when they love their wives as he loves. What's at stake? Uh, Plenty. Fulfilling our responsibilities before God, yes. Giving an account before God, yes. But most important, it's that we reflect, that we show, we display Jesus when we love this way. Conversely, when we fail to love this way, we're failing to show Jesus. Now men, that ought to be our incentive. Plenty of incentives I think I've given you. But chief among them all is that if I'm failing to do what God says in this passage, then I am failing to display Jesus, and that ought to break our hearts and move us toward repentance. And so I conclude by encouraging you men to take advantage of what we offer for you to be better leaders and better godly leaders. I encourage you to get to know your wife by asking her questions about how you can better serve her. Yes, it will require humility, but you serve a God or you claim to serve a God who bowed down to wash the feet of his sinful first followers. You can do this. How can I better serve you? What do I do that detracts from your progress? Now, I hold this book in my hand. It's called The Complete Husband. I've given it to some of you guys over the years. 
Some have made it through. Some have read a few pages and said that's too hard. It is hard. It's a tough book. It's a good book. On page 43 of this book, there are a list of questions for men to ask their wives. How can I better love you? How can I better serve you? I have that list of questions typed out on my computer, and I will be happy to send you an email copy of that for you to use with your wife. Let's confess, men, where we have fallen short of what God tells us our responsibilities are. Let us repent. That is, we're going to go a different direction. We see what God has said. We've changed our minds. It's literally what repentance means. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And so I'm going to ask my wife now, how can I serve you better? I'm going to begin to actually do that. Join with other men and our men for the accountability and the strength that you need. Get in the tracks that we offer for you to grow in the Lord so you can help your family grow in the Lord. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for these words in your word that are convicting for me as a husband and as a father. I'm sure convicting for my brothers here. But thank you, Lord, for the good gift of conviction. You've told us it's one of the reasons for which you've given your word, that all scripture is breathed out by you and it is useful for teaching and convicting, rebuking, so that we can be corrected. Without your convicting work, we cannot be corrected and trained in righteousness. So thank you, Lord, for the conviction that comes through your word applied by your Holy Spirit. I pray that my brothers here will see it that way as a good gift from our good God. Painful though it be, designed, a wound designed to heal by your hand and to make us more Christ-like. I pray, Lord, help my brothers, help me, to not leave this place unchanged. Help us, Lord God, to have the humility to admit our failings, to admit them to you, to confess them to our families, and to begin to take steps in a new direction to bring glory to you in the role that you have given us as husbands. We pray all of this in the name of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.